Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow Jones Industrial Average hit a new record high for the day. We closed above 22,200, up 45 points. The rest of the market was mainly lower. The S&P 500 hit a new high intraday, but could not uh, hold above it. It ended up closing down on the day. The Nasdaq Composite didn't hit a new high. It closed down 31 points. I think the catalyst for the rise in the stock market continues to be the enthusiasm that really started yesterday based on President Trump's announcement that he was close to a deal on tax cuts. And I think that deal is supposed to be announced uh, sometime before the end of the month. Now, of course, I've seen this movie before. I mean, Trump has come out and made a lot of statements about uh, a deal being ready, being on the table, going to happen soon. And of course, so far, every time he has uh, touted this, nothing has materialized. Yet the markets, you know, are not looking at the boy who cried wolf. Now they actually believe the president. Uh, they think he's serious. And one of the things that he's saying that maybe makes this more credible is that he's saying that he's working with the Democrats, that if he can't get something done with the Republicans, he's already working on a plan with the Democrats. And so one way or another, we're going to get this major tax reform. But of course, it's not really going to be tax reform. It's going to be tax cuts. Based on what the president is saying, we're not going to reform the tax code. We're not going to have a major shift that is going to make the economy more productive. I mean, the president has already said that the rich, however, he's going to end up defining rich. And I have a feeling that rich might be a lot less income than people might believe. But He's saying that the rich are not going to get a tax cut at all. They may even have a tax hike. So if you're not going to lower the top rate, if you're not going to reduce the marginal rate of tax, you're really not going to get any economic stimulus because that's where the growth comes from, where you lower the marginal rate and you may have a situation where people actually work harder at lower tax rates and produce more taxable income. 
so that maybe the government can actually collect more taxes at a lower rate because there ends up with more income subject to tax. And the reason is that the higher income people, once you've earned enough money to cover the basics, to the extent that you have high marginal tax rates, the incentive to keep working is reduced and the cost of leisure is reduced. Remember, leisure is very valuable. It's one of the things that people value most. And certainly as you have more and more income, leisure becomes more and more valuable. Now, the higher the rate of taxes, right, the less expensive leisure is. I mean, let's say, let's take an example of a 90% tax. Let's say you're a wealthy individual. You've already earned the money you need to cover the basics. You know, your mortgage is paid if you have one or your rent. You bought the food. Uh, you, you, did, you did all the things that you need, right? Now, are you going to keep working for 10 cents on the dollar? Do you need to make another $100,000 if you're only going to keep 10? Or would you rather just take a vacation? Because you're, if you take a vacation, you don't give up $100,000. You give up the 10000 So basically, the cost of leisure is reduced because if I decide to take a long vacation instead of working and not earn the extra 100000 the vacation doesn't cost me $100,000. It only costs me $10,000, my leisure, right? So leisure becomes... Uh, less expensive, and so people will demand more leisure. Now, of course, if there's no tax at all, and now my vacation costs $100,000 because that's what I lose by, by taking it, well, then I might decide to keep working. So if you lower the rate, the marginal rate of tax, you have a higher propensity to go out and earn extra money because you're going to pay less taxes, and you have a lower propensity to just prefer leisure to income because you give up a lot more income when you go after the leisure. So none of that's going to happen. If we just cut taxes in the middle brackets, it's not going to change people's behavior very much at all. You know, they're, they're going to keep on working the way they've been working. Now, yes, it's going to be good if they can keep more of their own income. Now, on the lower end, it might help if they can reduce taxes to the point where maybe it tilts the balance between getting a job and paying taxes versus being on welfare and paying, you know, and not paying taxes but getting welfare benefits, there may be a point in there where we can tip the scale in favor of work as opposed to being on the dole. But for people that are having jobs and they're making forty or fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, whatever their tax bracket is, if their tax bracket gets reduced a little bit, they're probably not going to work any harder. They're not going to generate any extra income. They're just going to pay a little less tax on the income that they do earn. Now, I'm all for lower taxes and people paying lower taxes. But only if we shrink government, only if we cut government spending. Nowhere is the president talking about that. In fact, what he's talking about is more government spending. In fact, when he's getting this deal with the Democrats, I'm sure that any deal is going to involve increasing government spending on infrastructure, on hurricane disaster relief, on border security, whatever it is. This is going to be a giant bill that is going to result in more government spending and less revenue to pay for that spending. Of course, another very important factor which the Democrats fail to understand or appreciate is that when you cut taxes on the upper income, what you end up doing is increasing the level of savings and investment in society. Because when the wealthy pay tax, at least on their marginal income, most of that money comes at the expense of saving and investment. So it's not the money that they were going to spend that is taxed. It's the extra money that was left over 
after they finished all their spending. You see, the, the more you earn in general, the lower the percentage of your income you spend. I mean, if somebody is earning $10 million a year, they may only spend a million dollars a year on their lifestyle. That leaves them $9 million a year uh, to save and invest in growing the economy and putting back into their business. They're not just spending everything they earn. Yes, if, you, if you're earning $60,000 a year, chances are you're spending 100% of what you earn and you're going into debt. You're probably you know, running up some credit card boots, bills to boot. But on the upper income, anytime there's a tax cut, the majority of that money is freed up for additional savings and additional investment. That is what grows the economy. That's what leads to more production more goods and services available to purchase, and more jobs to produce or supply those goods and services. Now, of course, I watched this uh, press conference with Nancy Pelosi today, and she talked about the opposite, how it's going to be great if we only give a tax cut to the middle class because they're going to inject that money right back into the economy because they're going to spend it. Hey, we don't want to cut taxes for the rich because they're just going to save the tax cuts, and that's a waste. They're going to they're gonna take that money out of the economy. We need to cut taxes for the middle class because they're going to put it in. They're going to inject it in with their spending. And all this spending is what's going to create growth, uh, create jobs. That's a bunch of nonsense. You don't create anything by spending. First of all, you can't buy something that doesn't exist. So first it has to be produced before it can be bought. And it's not like a field of dreams. If you spend it, it will come. Just because people have money to spend doesn't mean that there's going to be anything to buy. Now, obviously, they can spend it on imports. We can run up our trade deficit and crash the dollar. You know, we can give the middle class a tax cut so they can buy more imported products. But that's not going to stimulate our economy. That's going to stimulate you know, some foreign economy. We're just going to go deeper into debt. Yes, the American citizen will, will enjoy the benefit of the extra product as opposed to paying taxes. But it's not going to create jobs in America. It's not going to stimulate the American economy. It's going to weaken our economy by increasing our debt and by decreasing the value of the dollar. You know, all this spending, all it injects into the economy is inflation, right? When the government creates money out of thin air and gives it to people to spend, they don't create economic growth. It's inflation. Now, they're not really giving it to people. They're simply not taking it away. The money that's being given is the money that's being spent on government programs. But if the government is going to spend that money and cut off the revenue source, if they're not going to make the middle class taxpayer foot the bill for all these middle class entitlement programs, then all that money that the government is injecting into the economy is pure inflation. It doesn't create growth. It doesn't create jobs. It doesn't produce products. It just produces more money. And now people take that money and they bid up the price of the products that are already here or they send it abroad so that we can import more stuff that, that we didn't produce. But again, all that's going to put more downward pressure on the dollar that is already falling. Now, you know, one of the things that Trump is still talking about is the corporate tax cut. And he's still talking about 15% tax for corporations. And that's probably one of the reasons that the stock market is rallying, because they're anticipating higher after-tax earnings because of a, a lower tax rate. But, you know, I doubt that we're going to get the 15% rate, especially if the deal is cut with the Democrats. Because I don't think the Democrats are going to sign on to that kind of giveaway to corporate America, which is how it would be portrayed. I do think the president might get the rate down to maybe 25%, something like that. But the average corporation right now is already paying less than that anyway. So there's really no effective 
reduction, so after-tax earnings would not go up. It might go up for some companies, but depending on the deductions that they might eliminate, there could be some companies now that are paying 10% that will end up paying 25%. Why are, why are those stocks going up? Right? So the markets really should not be rallying on this because even if we get the tax cuts, it's more than priced in, and we probably won't get what they think. Meanwhile, if the marginal tax rates stay the same, we're still going to have marginal tax rates of 43%, which is you know the 39 point something plus the Obamacare tax, which is what small business owners would have to pay who are paying taxes at that rate, unless they're going to come and have the big reduction in pass-through rate. But I don't know how they can do that without giving a massive tax cut to the rich. Because if they're going to say, hey, if you earn your income through running a partnership, running a, you know, a, an LLC, and we're going to reduce that rate to 20, 25%, well, then all the rich people are just going to, you know, are going to shift their income to that type of income. In fact, many of the wealthy people already earned their income by working for their own LLC. I mean, a lot of people form their own companies and work for themselves, and they, they don't have an employer, and a lot of them are very, very high earners. Of course, some of them aren't. Some of them are Uber drivers. I, don't, I doubt that they've bothered to form LLCs, but there are plenty of self-employed people that make a little bit of money, but then you have people, you know, athletes, uh, movie stars. I mean, these guys create their own LLCs and pay themselves, so they would have a big tax cut. But of course, investment managers, hedge funds, I mean, if you say, oh, we're going to get away to take away the carried interest, but then you have this smaller tax for LLCs, well, all the hedge funds are LLCs anyway. Real estate partnerships are a lot of law firms. These, these, these are all people that are all partners in law firms. They're all making money from uh, payments on their uh, LLCs. So I, I doubt this is even going to happen because if, if Trump is making a deal with the Democrats that doesn't include any kind of tax cuts for the rich, uh, then I doubt that's going to be in there. So, I mean, this is not tax reform. We're not going to have a tax code that leads to greater economic growth because of a reform in the way we level taxes. It's still going to be a progressive uh, income tax system. We're not going to a flat rate. We're not going to a consumption tax and eliminating the income tax. I mean, we're not doing anything that would make the economy more efficient or more productive. We're just going to do stuff that is going to make the deficits larger. Now, are larger deficits going to be an economic stimulus to the country? I say no. You know, I heard Trump today, he was speaking and, you know, about the plan, and, well, he said it will be revenue neutral if you take into account all the extra growth that's going to be so huge. But how do we know that growth is coming? In fact, I think we're more likely to be in a recession next year than have the 4% growth that Donald Trump uh, claims we're going to get from his tax cuts. I think even if we get the tax cuts, we're still going into recession because it's not going to be enough to offset the other negative factors and some of those negative factors are going to be the consequence of the tax cuts themselves and the increase in government spending because it means we're going to have much bigger deficits. And one of two things are going to happen as a result of that, right? Maybe we're going to have higher interest rates or we're going to have more money printing, more quantitative easing, except now the dollar is falling, right? The dollar is continuing to fall. The last time we did quantitative easing, you know, we did get a rise in QE3. The dollar went up because everybody anticipated that it would be wound down successfully. And then we would normalize the balance sheet and uh, raise interest rates or shrink the balance sheet and normalize interest rates. But if we end up going into recession or we have much bigger deficits and the Fed has to monetize these and we have to do more QE, uh, then the dollar is just going to fall through the floor. I mean, it continues to fall. It was down again today. In fact, it initially rallied when we reported 
stronger than expected or better than expected the way some people look at it. Uh, inflation news. We got the CPI index that came out today for August. And uh, last month, of course, prices were only up one-tenth of one percent. And the forecast was for an increase of three-tenths of one percent. And they actually went up four-tenths of one percent. So we got more inflation than was the forecast. And the initial reaction was buying the dollar and selling gold. Gold traded negative a few bucks uh, as a result of these numbers. Actually, it was down five or six bucks, I think, initially. It had been, uh, I think, flat before the numbers came out. Because people believe, the traders believe, that higher inflation is good for the dollar and bad for gold. And again, why do they think that? Because they think, well, that just means the Fed is going to be more aggressive in their tightening. I don't think it means that at all. I don't think the Fed cares how high the inflation is. I don't think it's going to influence what they do in interest rates. And in fact, ultimately, it doesn't matter how high inflation goes. If the economy is weakening, if unemployment is rising, they ain't raising rates. They're cutting rates. So they're not going to fight that battle. They're going to surrender. And they're going to let the inflation win by default. They're going to try to fight other battles, such as uh, to prop up the phony economy, uh, to prop up the asset bubbles. And when traders realize that, I mean, the market, the dollar will sell off on high inflation. Gold will rise on high inflation because high inflation is good for gold. It's one of the reasons why people buy gold is as a hedge against inflation. But the market quickly recovered. Gold went back to about unch and then later rallied in the day. I think we ended up closing up about five or six bucks. And again, partially, I think that was due to some more news stories coming out of North Korea. Uh, so gold, yeah, it was up about five, six bucks. Interestingly enough, too, when we got more of that North Korea news that rattled uh, the markets a bit, the dollar sold off. Dollar index was down 0.38 today. They bought the Swiss franc. They bought the Japanese yen. Again, as I said in the last podcast, the dollar is no longer a safe haven. The dollar is a risk asset, and so it went down on elevated risk. What people bought was gold, and they bought some of these other currencies. And this trend is going to continue. You know, one asset that some people have said is a safe haven, and I have pointed out over and over again that it's not, that did not participate in that rally today was Bitcoin, or in fact, any cryptocurrency for that matter. Uh, they're all getting clobbered. We are in another a crypto bear market. The question is, will this one be as short in duration as the last one, which was over almost before it started? Bitcoin has now fallen by better than 35% since hitting its high two weeks ago. And of course, I have no idea where it's going to be by the time any of you listen to this podcast. It may be down quite a bit more than that. But at this point, the low I saw this morning was about 32.50, and the high was just over 5,000. Now, as I'm recording this, we're about 3,400. Uh, again, it's very volatile. But if you take that low price from earlier today, you're looking at a 37% decline from the top. And that is about the magnitude of the decline, or I think maybe a little bit less than the last bear market where Bitcoin went to 3,000, right? And I think it did that in uh, June where it got up to uh, 3,000 initially for the first time, uh, early June. And then it sold off and it bottomed out around 1,900 in, in mid-July. And remember, that had to do with the fears over the fork when Bitcoin was splitting in two and now we got Bitcoin cash. But that decline was about 37% decline. 
And now I think, yeah, I mean, we're not quite there. We're at a 35% decline rather this time. So this bear market is not quite as big as that one, but it's happening faster. I mean, this is the, 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 these are bigger drops quicker. But the last one was pretty quick. As I said, it took an entire month. And then Bitcoin rallied from below 2,000 to above 5,000. We had a huge rally. And, and so quickly, we, we quickly got a new bull market. I mean, that bear market, you know, was, was in the history books very quickly. People didn't even notice it. Now we have another bear market, right, in these cryptocurrencies. And I think the, the combined market cap from all the cryptos has gone from closer to 200 billion. I mean, I know we were like 180, 190 billion. And now we're back down a little above 120 billion. So a big decline. Bitcoin still seems to be holding into about a 45% market share. So it seems to be falling at about the same proportion as all of the other uh, cryptos. But the question that people should be asking themselves, especially if they own these things, is, is this going to be another short-lived bear market correction like the one that we just had, where we quickly make a new high and maybe this time we shoot up you know, to 10,000? Or is this the end? Was 5,000 the top? It might be. You know, now we're not going to know that for a while. I mean, even as possible, let's say that Bitcoin finds a bottom around here, or maybe it goes a little lower. Maybe it goes below three thousand, you know, twenty-eight, twenty-nine hundred, and then rallies. People might think, "Oh, everything is over." It actually could be a bull trap. Maybe we rally, but we don't make a new high. Maybe we only get to four thousand, and then maybe we come back down and and crack through, and we have a head and shoulders top where the neckline is a little bit below three thousand, and and 5,000 is the head, and that would project down below 1,000 to finish the pattern. And I believe if Bitcoin breaks below 1,000, that that's it. It's over. It's not going to go back up to 5,000 again. Uh, now, it may stay around 1,000 for a while and let a lot more people kind of pile into it. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of risk uh, in this currency and other currencies. You know, some people are blaming some of the decline on Jamie Dimon, who came out yesterday and basically said that you know Bitcoin was a fraud, and that you have he'd fire anybody who traded it at a for being stupid enough to trade it. But he did mention that his daughter had bought some, and so now she thinks she's a genius because she's made money. And you know, I listened to his criticism, and, and some was valid, some was not. I mean, I, I don't think that Jimmy Diamond has as good an understanding as I do about what makes money money, and and, and the difference between real money. Uh, money substitutes, real currency, fiat currency. And he doesn't seem to think that there's people have anything to worry about. If they live in America and they've got the dollar, he thinks that there's nothing to worry about. And of course, he's completely wrong. They have a lot to worry about. But I think the people who are worried about the dollar and who are taking refuge in Bitcoin have made a big mistake, even though they've made profits, right? They could cash out. But if they don't, it's going to end up being a mistake. I mean, it would be like, you know, Somebody who was, you know, in living in, in uh, Miami, and so they, they decided to take refuge from Hurricane Irma uh, by going to Naples. And then, you know, and then so it wouldn't have worked. They would have been better off staying in Miami, even though there was some win there. I, I think that ultimately the people who are moving into Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies would have been better off if they stayed in dollars. Now, they'd be better off if they went to gold. Uh, but I think the dollar is going to do better over time. Now, yeah, if you bought your cryptocurrencies, you know, when they were much lower, of course, you're better off if you sell. If you sell, I mean, ultimately, I believe that all the profits are going to be gone. And so if you don't realize the profits, they're not going to be there. Right. So and then it's not going to matter. 
if you wrote it all the way up and then you wrote it all the way down. And by the time you sold, you actually had less money than when you started, even though for a while on paper, you know, you had these huge profits. They mean nothing if you don't take them, because if you don't take them, the market is going to take them from you. Now, obviously, somebody is taking profits. Somebody is selling Bitcoins to the people who have been buying them. You know, and think about the people who bought the Bitcoins at 4,500 or 5,000. How are they feeling right now? What if that was their first purchase? You know, they thought it was a safe haven. They thought it was a store of value. Whoops. You know, it's gone. Right. I mean, it's not all gone, but they got to be getting nervous. And if it goes all the way down to 3,000, 2,000, 1,000, I mean, now you've got, again, you've got a big branding problem uh, because, you know, you have a huge decline. People are afraid that it could continue. You know, one of the things that's crazy, too, is that you've got a lot of hedge funds that have come in. I don't know if it's a lot. I don't know how many, but I know some hedge funds have gotten into the space, into the crypto space, Bitcoin and others, just recently, which to me, you know, is rampant speculation. I mean, what? Why would a hedge fund buy now? I mean, why didn't they just buy two or three years ago? I mean, it makes sense. A lot of hedge funds didn't know about Bitcoin when they were $5, $10, $20. But on that initial run to 1000 right, it was in all the papers. I mean, everybody with there talking about it on CNBC. I mean, anybody who's in the investment business knew about Bitcoin when it hit 1000 And they had plenty of time to study it and learn about it. And it was down around 200 300 400 for years. So any hedge fund that wanted to take a position had the opportunity to do it back then. Why didn't they? I mean, I mean, I didn't buy it back then because I don't think it's going to work. And I'm still not buying it now. So I'm assuming that the hedge funds that didn't buy it back then didn't think it was going to work. But now all of a sudden they think it's going to work. Now that the price is 10 times as high, there's no difference. The only difference is now they're greedy. I think they didn't buy it at, at before because they were afraid, right? It dropped from 1,000 to two or 300. And the, they were afraid to buy because they thought it might keep falling. But all of a sudden it goes to 5,000 and now they're too greedy not to buy. They're afraid to miss out. You know, that's when been the real rallying cry of this bubble. You know, it's like a lottery ticket mentality. Like if you don't buy a little bit and it goes to a million dollars of Bitcoin, I mean, you've totally missed out. So there are people that are just buying it just in case, just to hedge themselves in case it actually goes up. But all these pie in the sky forecasts, you know, got these hedge funds in there. But I think one of the reasons some of these hedge funds were willing to speculate is because it's not even their money. It's their clients' money. They made 20% of the profits if Bitcoin keeps going up, right? And if it collapses, oh, well, just start a new fund, right? It's not your money. But if you really think that things are going to go from 4000 to 100000 that's a huge payday if you're getting 20% of the profits. So you might as well put somebody else's money at risk. And I think some people did that. I don't think they're the smart money. Right. That's the dumb money. That's the spec money. And all these, you know, pie in the sky, uh, you know, forecasts. They're the they're the type of forecast that you would expect to see at the peak of a bubble. Now, as I said, is there a guarantee this is the peak? No. Right. We've we've had these. We've had a correction like this before and we've rallied. And I think that's also creating a, a sense of complacency among, uh, you know, the Bitcoin bugs that, well, you know, no problem. Buy the dip. Ride it out. It works until it doesn't, right? And the fact that so many people are so complacent about the fact that it doesn't matter, you could buy the dip, that should be a cause of concern. But let's see, because even if we make a new high, this is going to happen again. Even if we go to 10,000, we're going to have a big drop, and that one may be the last one. Because it doesn't matter how high it goes in the interim. In the end, it's still going to the same place. I still think they're going to zero. 
I don't even think they're going to stop at 100 or, I mean, maybe they don't go to exactly zero. Maybe they're worth some little bit of money. I don't know. But I think however high they go in the interim, they're still going to go down, you know, to that level. And in fact, they may even go lower. You know, sometimes the higher they rise, the bigger they fall. And personally, I'd like this bubble to pop now, right? Not because I'm anxious for people to lose money. So I can say I told you so. But I think the sooner the bubble pops, the better. Because the bigger it gets, the more people are going to lose money. The more unsuspecting people are going to come in, people like Jimmy Dimon's daughter, you know, people are going to buy into this stuff, and they're all going to lose. The people who are going to make money if this thing keeps going up are the people who bought in at the beginning, who are just selling in to the, to the, to the mania. And you know, they've already made enough money. I don't need to root for them to make any more. Right? But I don't want to see more people suckered into it. I don't want to see people who should be buying gold as a real store of value ending up throwing their money away because they buy into this uh, cryptocurrency hype. So the quicker this bubble bursts, the better. The, 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 that will mitigate the losses that other people have. And again, you know, if you're listening to me and you've got some of these things, look, take your profits. You don't have to sell it all. You know, if you bought it years ago, take out your original investment. Gamble with the house's money. Don't be greedy, right? Bulls make money. Bears make money. Pigs get slaughtered. There's going to be a lot of pigs that are going to be led to this Bitcoin slaughter. And if you're listening to my podcast, I don't want you to be one of them. Also, you know, speaking about the dollar, another risk for the dollar, looking at Secretary Mnuchin again, threatening more sanctions, uh, uh, you know, with respect to China if China continues to trade with North Korea. I mean, imagine we're threatening to sanction China. We're threatening to uh, put sanctions on Chinese banks to deny China our biggest creditor, our biggest lender. They supply us all kinds of uh, credit and all kinds of products. And we're going to threaten to deny them access to the uh, U.S. dollar and to the U.S. Uh, banking system and to the thrift system. I mean, come on. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you. And even if we never follow through with this threat, just threat, putting it out there could cause the Chinese and everybody else to, to, to rethink their dollar exposure. I mean, why is the world giving us this privilege of issuing the reserve currency if we're going to weaponize it? I mean, why are they giving us a club that we go around and bludgeon everybody with it? Maybe they're going to think, you know what, let's take away this, which is what they're doing. China and Russia moving away from the dollar. Even, I mean, uh, Venezuela coming out today, you know, we've been sanctioning them. So they're, they're, they're ceasing to deal in the dollar. They're now going to sell uh, their uh, oil in euros or Chinese yuan. They're done with the dollar. This is just another nail in the coffin of the dollar. And, you know, it's amazing how little our leaders understand the nature of this relationship and how much we depend on the reserve currency status of the dollar. How much we, 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 we depend on the kindness or stupidity of tra- strangers. Yet, you know, we should do everything we can to be prolonging this relationship. I mean, if I was a politician, if I wanted to, you know, get reelected, I would want to make sure that everybody was using the dollar, that we could keep on printing money and shipping dollars abroad, and we could keep writing checks that nobody cashed. I wouldn't threaten to upset that apple cart if I was trying to keep this phony bubble economy going, but they still don't even perceive or understand the real position that we're in and the relationship that we have uh, with the rest of the world. You know, I want to wrap this podcast up just by talking about this lawsuit that has been filed by three women. And I don't know if it's uh, going to be on behalf of other women that work for Google or just the three that have filed the suit. 
But they're filing this lawsuit against Google, and they are charging Google with sexual uh, discrimination. They claim that Google is paying their female employees less than what they're paying their male employees, even though the female employees were doing the exact same jobs. And supposedly, they're just as productive. So the women are, are doing the same work, and they're producing the same result. Yet, um, Google is just paying all those women less than what they are paying men. Now, this suit is a complete nonsense. In fact, some of these women are claiming that they're on some kind of track where they're going to earn less in the future than they would have earned if they were on a different track, but they haven't even gotten to the point where they've earned less money than what they would have earned had they been on some other track. But this whole idea that Google is deliberately paying women less simply because they're women is complete nonsense. I mean, first of all, hey, if they can actually get away with paying women less than men, I mean, that shouldn't be a crime. I mean, if the women are willing to work for less money, I mean, this is a voluntary relationship. No woman is forced to take a job at Google. And so if Google is just paying all the women less than what it pays men for doing the exact same work, then women shouldn't work there. They should go work someplace else where they can get paid more money. But what really shows you that the suit is all a bunch of nonsense is if you assume that women really would work for less than men, even though they were just as productive, then Google would only hire women. I mean, why would they hire any men, right? If I have to pay a man $100,000 and I can pay a woman $80,000 and she's going to do exactly the same job, if the result is going to be exactly the same, why would I want to throw away $20,000? If this woman is willing to work on the cheap, then I'm going to hire only women. Forget all the men. Why would I need those men? And the fact that there's plenty of men working at Google shows you that they're not getting the women cheap or they would only hire women. Obviously, uh, there's something else going on. And what that something else is, is that the women are not doing the exact same job as the men. They may be doing similar jobs, but they are not as productive. Why? Well, probably because of the choices that they make, probably because of the sacrifices that they make on the job so that they can have more time with their family, more time at home. Whatever it is, women are not just accepting less money. They are accepting less money in exchange for maybe more time off, more vacations, a more flexible work week. There are a lot of things that are in that compensation mix. But believe me, there's no way that Google can just hire a bunch of women for less than what they would have to pay men to do the exact same job. It's just impossible. And also, if these women are really being so underpaid, why doesn't one of Google's competitors offer them a better job? I mean, why don't they just go look around? I mean, there's plenty of demand for talent out there in Silicon Valley. So if you're a woman and you're being underpaid by Google, just go to Microsoft, right? Or that, they're in Washington. But go to some other company that's hiring, you know, tech people and, and get paid what you're worth. I mean, these are smart women. These are educated women. They're not little children. They know what they're worth. If they're worth more, they can get a better job. You know, this is all about the corruption of our legal system. This is a frivolous lawsuit, which unfortunately is allowed into an American courtroom. And these are lawyers that can shake down the company. The irony of this all is that Google fired this guy, a male employee, who actually wrote why uh, women are, are earning less than men and why uh, the tech companies have fewer female employees. 
and he actually wrote a rational explanation, which could pretty much be you know, the basis of Google's defense, and they fired that guy for saying those things. So how are they going to say those things now in a courtroom when they fired the guy who said the things personally? So maybe they put themselves between a rock and a hard place now uh, by firing that guy who's also had sued Google, you know, so you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. I mean, and also they're trying to do whatever they can to be diverse, right? And here they get sued. What message does this send employers, right? When people read about this and they read about these women that are suing their employer because they claim they were paid less just because they were women, what message does this send to employers? The message is don't hire any women, right? I mean, because that way, Nobody can accuse you of paying them less than the male counterparts. See, if you have only men and you pay each man based on their productivity, they can never come back and say, well, you paid me less than this other guy because I'm a guy. Well, well, he's a guy, so there's no basis for discrimination. But if a woman happens to be less productive than a man, and so I pay her less, and she works for less because she recognizes that she's not as productive as the guy, and then she later quits, she can come back and sue me and say, hey, you know, you paid me less than that guy, and it's because I'm a woman, and now I've got to defend myself. Even if I can ultimately prove my innocence, how much is it going to cost me? So the easy thing for a small employer to do, I'm not going to hire any women. That's an easy decision. Now, if you're a big employer, if you have hundreds of employees, obviously you can't get away with not hiring any women. And if you didn't hire any, somebody could sue you for not hiring them, and they could say, look, you know, you just... You didn't hire me because I was a woman. But the vast majority of lawsuits having to do with discrimination are not because you didn't hire them. That's a much harder case to prove. It has to do with what happens after you hire somebody. Either it's a wrongful termination or you didn't pay them enough or their work environment was hostile. Uh, you know, there was uh, harassment going on, maybe by a coworker, and you didn't do enough about it. So... The, the best way to minimize these lawsuits is just not to bring the woman into the workplace if you're a small employer. So if you're a small employer, you got three, four, five employees. Hey, what's that mean? Oh, I'm just not going to hire any women. Does that mean the employer is sexist? No, he just doesn't want to be sued. He doesn't want to leave himself open to a lawsuit. In fact, you know, if that's your thinking, well, you're not going to hire, you're only going to hire white men. You're not even going to hire black men because if you fire a black man, he can say, well, you fired me because I was black. Or if you pay him less than some other white guy, well, you paid me less because I'm black. Even though that had nothing to do with the decision, he can still sue you and now you're guilty until proven innocent and you're hit with a bunch of law, legal bills. So you don't want to hire the woman. You don't want to hire someone who's black. Don't hire someone who's gay because to the extent that you can tell that they're gay because, hey, they can sue you there for firing them because of their sexuality. Don't hire anybody over 50 because then you can get an age discrimination lawsuit. You fire somebody who's 55, 60 year old and you still have somebody and you don't fire the guy who's 20, 25 up age discrimination. Right? Don't hire somebody with a handicap. God knows you're going to be sued eight ways from Sunday. If you hire somebody that has a handicap, I'm not even sure if you can say handicap. That might even be the, the politically correct way to describe somebody who has some kind of uh, uh, disability. Just you just hire the people who are the least likely to get you sued, which again is the problem with all these laws, all these anti-discrimination laws lead to more discrimination. In a free market, people who discriminate get punished. Today, the way the government has rigged the system, people who discriminate get rewarded. You get rewarded by minimizing your legal expense and your lawsuits. So the government has created a market-based incentive to discriminate against women, 
against blacks, against homosexuals, against the elderly. If we didn't have any of these laws, then there would be no incentive to discriminate. There would just be an incentive not to discriminate. And that would be a monetary incentive. Hey, if you hire based on race or sexuality or gender, you're gonna, it's going to cost you money. You're not going to hire the best qualified person and you're going to give something up to one of your competitors. So the free market exacts a cost on somebody who is discriminating based on these factors. The government, through regulation, provides you a reward. It rewards the employer who doesn't hire anybody in these uh, special classes who discriminates. And if you do hire the minorities or the women, then you get punished with lawsuits. You get punished by having to defend yourself. You know, and of course, on the big companies, you know, they have to hire everybody. Otherwise, they can get sued just based on looking at the numbers, right? If you have if you have a thousand workers and they're all white men, God, it's going to be pretty obvious that you're discriminating. If you only have three and they're white men, you know, you, nobody could 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 say and the sample size is too small. Nobody could say that you're discriminating. Hey, this is just how it happened. This is just you know, can I can I toss heads three times in a row? Absolutely. I mean, that happens a lot. I mean, the probability is not that low of tossing heads three times in a row. There's no way you're going to toss heads a thousand times in a row. So once you become a big enough company, well, then you got to do all this. But now you've got to spend all this money on sensitivity training and you got to have all these ridiculous, you know, rules and you got to fire people at a pin drop. And, you know, you, I mean, and then you got to you got to be prepared for lawsuits. And of course, all of this, you know, reduces the pool of money available to pay workers. Workers are getting less money because their employers have to spend a lot of money paying lawyers to protect themselves from lawsuits instead of just paying their workers. But, you know, these are lessons that the liberals will never learn because the sound bites are just too bad. Right. I mean, if I was running for office and I wanted to do away with all of these anti-discrimination laws, right, I would be painted as a bigot, as a Nazi, you know, as, you know, a hateful person who wants to ban blacks from eating in restaurants, who wants to put them on the back seats of the bus. Right? This is what would come out, even though that's the furthest thing from my mind, even though what I would do by eliminating all these laws, it would empower minorities and women. They would be able to go into the labor force and bargain for higher paying jobs, for better jobs. They would have more opportunities. The people who benefit from all this are the lawyers. The lawyers are making all the money off of this. Not the women, not the minorities. Not, not, not. It's the lawyers. The lawyers are cleaning up and the lawyers are politicians and they write laws for their legal buddies. And, you know, that's who's going to benefit from this Bitcoin collapse, too. How many people are going to get sued over this? People are going to lose a lot of money. And then the lawsuits are going to come and the lawyers are going to make money. I mean, they always, they're like vultures, right? They swoop down whenever there's a catastrophe and they make all kinds of money. We've got to minimize lawyers by minimizing the laws, right? The fewer rules we have, the fewer regulations we have, the fewer lawyers we have. You know, we have probably 10 times as many lawyers per capita as any other country in the world. And that alone can explain America's collapse economically, why we used to dominate the world and now the world dominates us because we have all these lawyers, right? We don't want to have this many lawyers. Uh, we, 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 we want to get rid of the rules and regulations. And of course, that would be one of the reasons to have real tax reform is so people wouldn't have to hire all these tax lawyers. But none of that's going to change. It's all going to remain the same. And all this optimism around how Trump is going to make America great again it is all going to go away. The only question is, how much more time is this charade 
going to last? When are people going to wipe all of the smoke out of their eyes and actually see what is clearly staring them in the face? Thank you.